Hey everybody, Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective here on the Women's Health Podcast. I thought I'd just do a quick introduction. Lily Nichols, she's brilliant. Uh, had so much fun talking to her. Hope you enjoy the podcast. It's on uh, antenatal, postnatal nutrition and gestational diabetes and nutrition for them. So let us know how you go and stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a bonus question we got to ask Lily. Thanks very much. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. And I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. Together we interview leading authorities, answer questions, and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember the materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and for entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now it's time to get cracking with the episode, so whether you're out walking your dog, driving the kids to school, or just sitting back enjoying a glass of wine, we hope you enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's Anthony Lowe here. Marika Hart, my co-driver, co-host, how are you going? I'm good, thanks Anthony. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, Apologies for the delays. Uh, because Marika's in Perth and I'm in the USA, and so is our special guest, Lily. Uh, how are you going, Lily? I'm doing well. Happy to be here with you two. Before the show, um, I was saying that I'm going to ask all the dumb questions because I don't really know too much about nutrition and pregnancy. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to learning lots today and um, getting to ask my silly questions and um, we've got the brilliance of Marika anyway to draw out the brilliance in you, Lily. So um, it's fantastic to have you on here. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I thought I would introduce Lily today because we've been in contact from, we just figured out it's been like four or five years now. Um, and I, what drew me to Lily is uh, with all my work with pregnant ladies um, with gestational diabetes, I sort of came across some things that she'd written and um, made contact with Lily and asked her to in, uh, to be interviewed for one of my blog posts. And she kind of blew my mind because everything that I'd been reading at the time, I don't feel had been as heavily researched as what Lily had been producing. And I think it's safe to say there's probably not a lot of people in the world who have read as much about gestational diabetes um, as Lily has. And then through that work, she's also, so she created a book, which is Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and then has also written another book, Real Food for Pregnancy. I hope that's the correct title, um, which has been a huge, huge seller. And the Amazon reviews are basically all five stars. There's even people trying to, I've noticed, steal your content and try and sell it on Amazon. That's how good she is. Um, and yeah, but the thing with Lily I've noticed is that she really is very, very passionate about pre and postnatal nutrition, but very well read. And I think she's sort of pushing what has been considered that sort of conventional wisdom a little bit over the past few years with fantastic results. So, um, welcome to the show, first of all, Lily, and we would love it if you could just tell us a little bit about your story. So your background in nutrition and how you, you know, got so fierce about nutrition in pregnancy. Yeah. So thank you for that lovely introduction, by the way. Um, 
I have been in the prenatal nutrition space for actually most of my career as a registered dietitian nutritionist. Uh, so I've worked in clinically with clients one-on-one. -on -one. I've worked in the public policy arena with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program. I've worked in a lot of consulting and research roles um, as well. And really it's kind of the culmination of all of those things that makes you realize how much room for improvement there is in the current guidelines that guide how we actually treat gestational diabetes or what nutrition recommendations we give for pregnancy just as a whole. Um, and so especially being able to look at things from a research angle and be involved in the writing of the guidelines in California, <laughs> let me see just how much um, politics, I guess, play into what actually gets you know, the stamp of approval as what's, you know, officially accepted. Um, and when you keep close an eye or a close eye on the research, you also see there are studies coming out pretty much constantly that will always question what you believe to be true. Um, and so I ultimately, like the reason my books exist is I realized that we're not going to see the guidelines changing anytime soon to reflect current evidence. We know there's a gap of about 17 years from research to make it into clinical practice and then even longer for it to get into public policy. So it was like, all right, I just got to like cut through this and just get right to the people. It has to be more of a grassroots thing than trying to change it from the top down. That I, I don't think that approach is um, going to make change. At least it's not going to make change in time for like my kids to <laughs> benefit from this information, right? So. Here I am. Cool. That's um, that's that's kind of disheartening. Um, that you know, you, the 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 guidelines can't keep up with the research, um, and a delay of seventeen. Years, I I get a delay of five years. You know, like give it some time to collect. Um, what what would you say the difference? In, in your understanding of the research and the way that you've written your books, has um, the approach to nutrition in the uh, perinatal period, um, how is that different to what we've been hearing for years? So there's a number of ways that, they, that my recommendations differ. Um, so first of all, how I like to look at prenatal nutrition is that let's look at what we we know pretty solidly from the data um and i'd say the micronutrient requirements vitamins minerals specific fatty acids like dha we have much stronger understanding of how much of those nutrients we need from food than we do the macronutrients fat carbohydrates and protein and so i like to reverse engineer what would be a, a solid prenatal diet coming from the micronutrient standpoint. And then let's just see where the macronutrients fall. Because the way the guidelines are currently written is they are an extrapolation of the adult dietary guidelines. So they're basically the same. If you look at the breakdown of recommended levels for fats, carbohydrates, and protein, it's almost the same as adults. And then they just like add a little extra protein here for pregnancy because we guesstimate you need a little extra. And then all the rest of the micronutrients fall where they fall. 
And then they usually recommend a lot of fortified foods to make up the gaps in the diet. And that doesn't make sense to me because when you go the other way around and you prioritize the micronutrients first, you see your macronutrient ratios fall into a very different category than what the guidelines currently are. So for example, if you follow the guidelines to a T, they recommend 45 to 65% of your calories coming from carbohydrates. So that means you're getting quite a few servings of grains and starchy foods and potatoes and whatnot um, in your day. Unfortunately, when you do that, you also end up with usually a lack in iron and zinc and vitamin A and sometimes vitamin B12 and maybe DHA if you're not getting much seafood. You actually end up with a lot more nutritional gaps in the diet if you interpret those guidelines to the T. So what you're saying is uh, following the if it fits my macros means that you're more likely not to get the micronutrients um, by focusing on the macronutrients. Is, is that about right? If you're following the guidelines macronutrient requirements, I'd say yes. Um, maybe if you were erring towards more than 45% of calories from carbohydrates, you might get there a little better. Um, but you know, we even have new data now showing that the protein requirements are way underestimated in the current guidelines. So we really need to like, if we shifted those macronutrient ratios, it, it, it could be done. You could be fine. But I'd say it'd be pretty hard to meet all your micronutrient requirements if you were getting more than half of your calories from carbohydrates. And when I run micronutrient oh. analyses on sample meal plans following those, that's exactly what I find. Right. So I guess if I could take a step back, can you just outline for us what what the percentages of the macronutrients in the guidelines are and and maybe what what you're finding the uh, the percentages fall towards if you prioritize the micronutrient um, the, the micronutrients in your diet. So the guidelines I talked about the carbohydrates. 45 to 65% of your calories coming from carbohydrates. They recommend a relatively lower fat intake, so less than 30% of your diet from fat, and then the rest comes from protein. Uh, if you do a nutrient analysis, I, see, it's hard because I, I, I kind of hate talking macros because it gets people focused on the wrong thing, but just for completion's sake, <laughs> we'll talk about it. If you were to run a sample meal plan that I have in my book and maybe somebody who's not quite not going super low carb for the purposes of gestational diabetes or something like that. Um, I see the carbohydrate ranges falling in the maybe 25, 30% of calories from carbohydrates, protein, at least 20%, maybe even 25%. And then um, the rest coming from fat. So it actually sounds really high fat because it's like maybe half or so of your diet is going to come from fat. But that's actually just what happens when you eat real food and you don't take the fat out of it. About half your diet comes from fat at minimum. <laughs> and in fact, assuming that you're eating real food to get to those macro levels, you actually get quite a bit of micronutrient. Um, density in your diet when you do so. 
So like in the introduction of Real Food for Pregnancy, I actually have a sample meal plan, the one that the conventional guidelines publish, and then a sample meal plan. I just took one at random from the book and then compare all the micronutrient levels. I also show the macros too, because you have to do that. And it comes out on top for almost all of the micronutrients when you do real food, even though the diet is like, oh my gosh, half fat, which freaks dietitians out. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's, that's what I was going to raise. Like I've got a friend who I have spoken to about just diet in general. And, um, she was saying that if somebody, if a diet, I'm pretty sure somebody got struck off the register in Australia for recommending a diet that was relatively high in fat and protein and not, and didn't follow the guidelines, like, like getting punished for, for not yeah. following the Australian guidelines, you know, like, and what you're saying is that when you put the real food stuff in and you look at the micro micronutrients, like you're saying that it comes out on top, they're getting what they need um, compared to a sample diet that fits the guy. Is that what you're saying? Like, that's pretty shocking. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> that's why I put it in black and white with the numbers right there. Um, I hear from Australian dietitians, there is a lot of um, pressure. I think there's a lot more pressure down there to like comply um, than there is in the US. I mean, I'm definitely a rogue dietitian and that, you know, I'm, I work for myself. So like, what are you gonna do, fire me? You know, like, <laughs> like when you're working for a, an institution, you might be more, I don't know, forced to follow a certain way of doing things. But for me, it's what's actually, what actually works. I mean, the whole reason that either of my books is in existence so that I'm here talking about these things was that I was working with real clients, giving dietary advice, following the guidelines. And these people with gestational diabetes were not experiencing good blood sugar control. A lot of times I would give them their recommended, you know, here's your like sample meal plan and this is how you count your carbohydrates and you have to get this minimum number of carbohydrates per day and their blood sugar numbers would get worse. So I'm here because I'm in speaking out about this stuff because I've found that ultimately the guidelines don't help people and they often make it worse. So I do think we need to, you know, especially dietitians need to be more open in speaking up about this stuff because there are so many people who've reached out to me and said, oh, thank you for finally saying this or finally putting it into a resource with citations. I mean, I cite, excuse my friends, but I, I, I cite the shit out of everything that I publish because people are so afraid to go against these guidelines. I mean, the prenatal nutrition guidelines from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics from the US, they, they have far less citations in their policy paper than I have in my book. They don't even have a hundred citations. There's over 900 in my book, right? It's like, yeah, sure. They can cite what they want to cite, but it isn't as complete a body of evidence as they present it as. Um, so, I mean, as all professionals, we got to like put our thinking caps on and be like, maybe there's something that would work better if the current way of doing things is not working as, as we're using it right now. 
I love that you're considered a rogue, a rogue dietitian nutritionist by, you know, telling people to eat real food. Um, no, it's right. crazy, Lily. Uh, <laughs> we just taking a little bit of a step towards um, a little bit more specific, uh, a, few, a few more specifics about pregnancy nutrition. I think we'll come back to um, gestational diabetes in a minute because I know Anthony wanted to know a little bit about that. So perhaps Anthony, you ask that next. But um, I find that a lot of women in, in Australia, um, traditionally, and in the UK as well, when I was there, when I was pregnant, we often get given a little leaflet that says, you know, don't eat packaged meat and, and salads that have been sitting out for a while. Like, don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. Um, and then crack on with it. And, you know, like you said, eat this amount of carbohydrates, maybe eat a little bit more protein. But there's the, there sort of seems to be more information about what not to eat than what... Yeah perhaps you could add to your diet that is different to what it was before. Um, so just in, I mean, I guess this is probably going to mostly come down to the micronutrients, but I'd love for you just to quickly, I know this is covered in so much more detail in your book and I don't expect you to dive too deep into it in a podcast, but maybe just give a few little um, uh, ideas to our audience of the, the important things that you think perhaps are lacking in pregnant women's diet that you think that they should definitely add in. Yeah. I love this question because I think that's the question that we should be asking is what should I eat more of, not what do I need to be afraid of? Uh, so a couple examples of things that can be really helpful to incorporate into the diet. There's a lot of nutrient needs that increase in pregnancy. So we talked about protein, for example. Protein needs do increase in pregnancy, particularly in the second half of pregnancy. So getting enough protein foods is vital but also many of your protein-rich foods are also really dense in micronutrients. A perfect example of this is eggs, which are your number one dietary source of choline. Are you familiar with choline? Raise your hand. No, yes. Okay, good. We get to talk about it then. So everybody's I've worried about... You, I've never heard Every... anyone else talk about <laughs> Everybody's worried about folate in pregnancy, right? Folate is important for early brain development, the prevention of neural tube defects. That's fantastic. Eat your leafy greens, your liver, your legumes, your avocado, your asparagus, and whatnot. Great. Folate, great. Choline is like what I call folate's long-last cousin. It's a B vitamin-like compound that has many of the same benefits to brain development, probably even above and beyond folate, but it's helpful in the prevention of neural tube defects. It's also been shown to optimize um, baby's brain development, particularly when it's provided in high amounts, double what the current recommended intake is for choline. Um, because those original uh, recommendations were actually based on data from adult men. So we now have really strong randomized controlled trials in women showing that you need a lot of choline. Your main dietary source of that is going to be eggs, and it's found in the egg yolks. So I'm a big fan of eggs. They like it's two birds with one stone. You get a lot of protein. You also get a lot of choline. There's many, many other things in eggs, but it's usually a pretty easy sell item for people to, to eat more of. Um, another one is that your iron needs increase quite a bit. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of encouraging as much iron-rich foods as you can handle, um, especially because a lot of people are entering pregnancy with low iron levels, and also iron supplements tend to be pretty poorly tolerated. Most people who quit taking iron supplements do it because the side effects are 
unbearable. And there are, you know, different kinds of iron. Some are better absorbed than others, but ultimately food sourced iron, heme iron, especially from animal foods is very well absorbed and doesn't have any of those icky side effects. So yes, you're looking at, you know, red meat, but you're also looking at the two top sources actually would be shellfish like oysters, clams, mussels, you do, would want to do those cooked in pregnancy. Um, but also organ meats, especially liver, really, really high in iron, like off the charts high in iron. Red meat is like a paltry <laughs> comparison to those two food sources. So, you know, it doesn't have to be something you eat every single day, but if you're comfortable including those foods sometimes in your diet, that would be super, super helpful for, for iron purposes. And also, guess what? That hits your protein needs too. Um, and then finally, I'm just picking some at random, but you know, another one would definitely be your vegetables, especially your leafy green vegetables. So those are going to be really high in folate. They also have a lot of minerals, especially magnesium, vitamin K, helpful for blood clotting, and just a lot of different phytonutrients that are just overall beneficial for you, but continue to be helpful in pregnancy as well. That's, that's so awesome. Um, you know, and it's real food, you know? Um, so liver, I heard liver, I heard eggs, I heard shellfish. Um, in terms of those who are vegetarian or vegan, um, you know, I, I also heard the leafy green vegetables, which is good. Um, I have two questions. How does this work for those who are vegetarian or vegan and how does it work? Um, in terms of, well, you said before that you get a naturally high fat intake. Do I, I've heard of things like, uh, nutrients being fat soluble or, you know, uh, it better absorbed by the body. If it's got some fat along with it, perhaps I told you, I don't know very much. I'm just telling you stuff that I've heard. Um, those two things, how does that go? Yeah. So the second part of your question was about fat soluble nutrients. I just want to make sure I understand that part. Okay. Yeah. So first part, vegetarian and uh, vegan diets. So first of all, I'll say there's a pretty lengthy section on this in chapter three of real food for pregnancy towards the end of the chapter. So I, I want to direct people to that resource because it's just a very comprehensive look at this topic and this is a very touchy subject for a lot of people. So I do want to like give that up front. Um, a vegetarian diet, I think, is, is possible to meet the nutrient requirements of pregnancy, mostly from food alone, maybe with a select few supplements added in. Um, a vegan diet becomes much more challenging. So again, I like to look at this from the micronutrient standpoint. And there's four things to keep in mind. And that is that certain nutrients might be missing from the diet entirely, like vitamin B12 for somebody who is fully vegan. For somebody who's vegetarian, who's eating eggs and dairy products, assuming they're including enough of those in their diet, they might be just fine on B12. Um, but somebody who's vegan would definitely need a vitamin B12 uh, supplement. The second thing is that certain nutrients might not be provided in sufficient concentrations in plant foods. So an example of this is choline. Another one would be glycine. That's an amino acid that you need more of in pregnancy. 
and also um, vitamin K2, with the exception of people who eat a whole bunch of natto, which is a fermented soy product. But most just like standard run-of-the-mill vegetarians are, are not eating a bunch of that. Third thing would that be um, certain nutrients aren't as well absorbed. So I mentioned heme iron. That's found in animal foods. Non-heme iron is found in plant foods. It isn't as well absorbed. Same thing goes for zinc. And then the fourth thing to keep in mind is that certain nutrients might not be provided in a form that your body utilizes as well. So a good example of this is omega-3 fats. A lot of people talk about omega-3 fats for brain development. Really what they're talking about is DHJ, and that is an omega-3 fat you find in animal foods. Your body doesn't convert the kind that's found in plant foods into DHA in sufficient quantities for pregnancy. This is well, well documented in the research. So you'd need an alternative source of DHA, and there is a vegan option, which is an algae-based DHA supplement. Um, another example of this would be vitamin A. So the kind of vitamin A you get from plant foods is different than the kind of vitamin A you get from animal foods, and the conversion process is not efficient, and it's not, um, it's not enough for some people's needs, especially if they have certain genetic differences, which unless you're working with a really fancy functional medicine doctor, you probably don't even know about. So those are like the four things to keep in mind. Um, and then I would refer people to that section in chapter three to go through like nutrient by nutrient, where are these things found? And like, can you make it work in a vegetarian, you know, plan? Or do you want to add in specific supplements or add in specific animal foods to fill in the gaps? I just want it to be like a, an informed decision on, on how people proceed with that. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. I just got a whole bunch of questions in my head now. Um, that's okay. <laughs> oh, I didn't answer the fat one. <laughs> oh, did you want me to answer that? Yeah. Well, I, well, and the fat one, and can you comment on, um, the new meat substitutes like beyond meat and, um, I can't remember the other ones. I saw a documentary on the plane, you know, so, um, because they were talking about heme, they were talking about heme something, but anyway, uh, <laughs> might be talking about, I think impossible burger, which is like, a, I believe that's mm -hmm. the lab grown that, that was the other one yeah. product. I believe that one, they, they have heme iron in mm. it. I don't believe beyond burger has heme iron in it. But I did recently post a little rant on Beyond Burger um, on my Instagram feed, which kind of turned into, uh, well, anytime I post anything, even remotely re like questioning the plant-based like doctrine, um, all hell breaks loose and I just get tons of trolls. So <laughs> the Beyond... So the Beyond Meat product is really a, it's a, a replacement for beef. That's what they want it to be, is a replacement for ground beef. And it's made from primarily a pea protein isolate and canola oil are the first two ingredients. Um, you know, I got nothing against legumes, like peas, fine. Um, canola oil, I'm like less enthused about, but the pea protein isolate so anytime you're doing something that's heavily legume based you do want to think about how 
that is grown. And currently in the US and in many other places, that's like one of the most heavily sprayed crops with pesticides, especially glyphosate. And we have quite a bit of research showing that that's not the best idea to consume a lot of those products, um, especially in pregnancy. And then the canola oil is, it's a highly processed vegetable oil, which is tends to be pretty inflammatory for people. And so to have a product that's like, those two things are like the top two ingredients is like not great. If you just look at the macros, it looks fine. You're getting like this great high protein meal. Um, but when you look at the ingredients, it's just a whole a hodgepodge of processed plant derived ingredients all slopped together into something that looks like ground beef. I'm really not the biggest fan. If somebody is wanting to do this as an every once in a while thing, like sure, fine. Is it a nutritional replacement for nutritionally equivalent replacement for ground beef? No. Um, and moreover, I think you're actually doing uh, much more of a favor to the environment if you're purchasing ground beef like from a grass-fed cow, especially from a small farmer where you're supporting their livelihood and the cows are out on the pasture and pooping in the pasture and and bringing nutrients back into the soil and actually it become it can become a carbon sink it becomes something that's actually beneficial to the environment um, when animals are actually pastured appropriately but currently the conversation is really binary on like it's plants versus confined animal feeding operations which are terrible in every possible way and there's no in between there's no crosstalk um my friend diana rogers who runs sustainable dish she's coming out with a book and and a documentary on this whole thing so i definitely encourage people to go check out that thing if they want more information on the sustainable ag um side of things but you know nutritionally speaking not a huge band of of beyond beef beyond burger whatever it's called yeah, no, that's fair. And the fat soluble thing? Oh, so yeah, so there are, like you mentioned, there's a lot of nutrients that are fat soluble. So we have like our fat soluble vitamins, vitamins A, D, E, and K. There's also a lot of um, phytonutrients, which happen to be fat soluble as well. And then you have, of course, your specific fatty acids that are beneficial, like DHA that we talked about. And yes, like those things are provided in foods that naturally contain fat. And when we consume them as a whole food source, you actually absorb more of those nutrients versus if you're just taking them in isolation. Um, in addition, there are a lot of nutrients that work in tandem or they work synergistically. So like DHA and choline, for example, They've found that when you provide both nutrients together, and both of them are helpful for brain development, they get into the fetus's brain better than when they're provided separately. And when you look at the food sources of DHA, for example, like you can get it in egg yolks, you can get it in salmon, you're also getting choline right along with those foods. So there's a lot of stuff that like Mother Nature is kind of taking care of the details for you. We can nerd out about it because it's 
it's fun, it's cool. Um, but you actually don't need to know as much if you're just eating real food because a lot of these details are taken care of. Same thing with like salads taste better with salad dressing. We have all this research on the fat soluble nutrients and phytochemicals in vegetables and how they are better absorbed when you eat them with a source of fat, like with salad dressing or with some avocado. It's like, hmm, I wonder why those foods taste so much better when there's some fat with them, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so just because I wanna summarize what you've said in the last however long, um, not a fan of the processed meat alternatives because the ingredients used to provide the protein um, and the fat come from uh, legumes which are heavily sprayed um, and, and also canola oil which can be quite inflammatory to the system. Um, so you said if you're vegetarian and you eat enough dairy and eggs, um, you, you can, you can get really close to getting all you need with maybe a couple of focused supplements, but if you're vegan, it's a lot harder to get there. Um, and linking back to what you said about, you know, basically half your diet being fat, when you eat real food that has fat in it, naturally you're going to better absorb those nutrients that you're getting from the real food anyway. Is that a fair summary of, of what you said so far? Yeah, that's a fair summary. And I'll, I'll add that this whole like 50% fat, like this like really freaks people out. People I think are, who are listening are probably thinking I'm telling people to like melt a stick of butter and like drink it or something. <laughs> it's really easy to get to 50% fat if you are simply not taking the fat out of the products where it naturally exists. Okay, so like if you're eating the eggs with the yolks and if you're eating the chicken with the skin and if you're using some salad dressing on your salad and you're having nuts and like you're not like you're not just adding fat like ad lib just so much fat. Big oh fried God. chicken. Like, it's, Right. It's, it's literally like what is in the food that very easily gets you up to those um, macro ratios. So yep. people are concerned. I just want to sort of assuage some fears here. Yeah. So and you don't have to cook in fat. <laughs> I was just going to say for those that are listening on the podcast, when Lily said you can eat your chicken with the skin on it, Anthony looked <laughs> so damn happy and threw his arms in the air. <laughs> yeah that's because chicken and skin go well together especially when they're roasted don't like you said you don't need extra you don't need to cook it in fat because chicken thigh with skin is just amazing you know just on its own grill it it's awesome i mean Potatoes you still cook fat. with fat but you know and i i definitely yeah. am a fan of cooking with fat but it doesn't have to be like gallons of this stuff <laughs> yeah. yeah awesome um if we could switch gears and if I could ask about gestational diabetes. So one of the things that has confused me since I, since 23 years ago, when I started working in the hospital system, seeing diabetic educators, diabetic nurses and gestational diabetes in the antenatal wards, you know, postnatally 
um, they may develop diabetes. Um, I, I, I never understood that they had to eat more carbs. Like, the, like you know, I, I'd ask a patient and it's like, oh, you've got diabetes um, or gestational diabetes. Uh, what did the dietitian tell you to do? Because I'm thinking, oh, you know, you're going to have to cut out bread. You're going to have to cut out this and all this other stuff. And it's like, yeah, they told me to eat more pasta, more bread, more rice. And like, I'm so confused. Can you explain that for me, please? Like, I don't understand what what's supposed to happen in gestational diabetes. How can we best help these women? Not me, because I'm not a dietitian, but you know, like just knowledge and awareness, please. Yeah. So what you have described being dumbfounded by the advice for somebody with diabetes and by the way gestational diabetes translates to carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy this literally means your body is unable to tolerate large amounts of carbohydrates without having high blood sugar and the whole goal of gestational diabetes management is to manage the blood sugar because if you can keep the blood sugar within normal parameters you actually avoid virtually all of the complications of gestational diabetes. It's not this doom and gloom diagnosis that so many people assume that it is. But why then is the advice to eat more carbohydrates? Why would we tell them to eat more of the very foods that spike their blood sugar? It's a good question. I don't have a good answer and I've worked in the gestational diabetes field for a long time. And that is the reason that my resources exist, is to be a voice of reason and to help people understand where these crazy guidelines came from, why there's so much pushback about doing different, meaning like giving people a carbohydrate appropriate diet, like an amount of carbohydrates that you can, your body can manage your blood sugar levels well, right? And that varies person to person, but it is often less than what the guidelines recommend. A friend of mine just tagged me, a fellow dietitian and diabetes educator, just tagged me in something on social media where she's like, they're a clinic who's actually um, incorporated the guidelines from my book into their practice. And they've seen great results. Um, and they're receiving some pushback from some people in the area because they don't recommend a minimum level of carbohydrates like the guidelines do. And so she's like, I decided to revisit the guidelines and see what they recommend. And it was like 30 to 75 grams of carbohydrates at lunch and dinner. Now, to put this into perspective, when somebody gets diagnosed with gestational diabetes, they usually do so with a glucose tolerance test. They have you drink this sugary drink, it's just pure glucose, and then they measure your blood sugar at different time points. And different countries do it differently. So in Australia, they do the good one, the 75 gram two hour test. In the US, it's a little more bonkers. But nonetheless, at minimum, you're provided with at least 50 grams, possibly 75 or 100 grams of glucose. Why then? So you get the diagnosis of gestational diabetes because your body, quote, failed to adequately lower your blood sugar after that glucose load. So why then would we provide you with a meal plan that provides equivalent or more glucose per meal 
and expect your body to miraculously bring your blood sugar down to normal every time, three times a day. What? It makes no sense. Um, so yeah, I, I'm with you, Anthony. I, it, it boggles my mind. So, so like, I mean, you know, it hasn't changed, right? They are recommending stupid levels of carbs yes. to gestational diabetes patients. Yes, that has not changed. Oh, okay. Because I thought, you know, okay, I haven't worked on the ward for a couple of decades. Maybe they just caught up, but it sounds like they haven't. So it has changed in the Czech Republic, um, randomly through Twitter of all places. Uh, big listening, my... big listening audience in Czech. You know. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Maybe one or two. <laughs> uh, there is a researcher, um, who asked on Twitter for a resource on nutrition for gestational diabetes and somebody tagged my book and somehow it ended up on the desk of quote, the top diabetologist in the country. Um, and ultimately they actually ended up changing their gestational diabetes guidelines back in 2016. So they took out the mandatory minimum requirement for carbohydrates, which in their country was set at 200. Instead, they placed a maximum cap at 200 grams of carbohydrates per day. Um, in the US and most other places, the minimum level of carbohydrates is uh, 175 grams per day. So you break that down and it's similar to the meal plan um, breakdown that I was telling you about. But yeah, most places it's still, it's still that, it's still, a lot of carbs. Ah, uh, it's uh, it's really challenging, isn't it? And I do. You have to wonder how much of it is lobbying by certain industries. And I don't want to get too political, but I think there's a lot of that that goes behind the scenes that makes change very difficult. Um, we, I'm just cognizant of the fact that we we probably don't have a lot more time with you, Lily. And it's we've well, we could talk to you for hours, and. I think for anyone who has GD, just get Lily's book. Honestly, it's got so much detail in it and will help. And I've, I've had a lot, I've sent quite a few clients to get it. And just through chatting with some of my physiotherapy colleagues who recommend it as well. And the feedback they've got has been really good because it really helps guide people through that process. So I think that's, it's really amazing that you've made something that's accessible for the general public that they can help manage their own condition in conjunction, obviously with their healthcare providers. Um, but if we just take a, a sidestep to post-anal nutrition, Lily, if that's the right, um, because you yeah. did put a chapter in your pregnancy book about post-anal nutrition. And I think actually, no one talks about, well, not many people talk about what happens after the baby comes out. And I don't know whether there's not much research about that, but um, how about we, there's probably two things that I want to ask about and um, Anthony might have some other thoughts too. One is the breastfeeding side of things. So um, whether there are certain nutrients that you think women need to focus on postnatally for the baby, for breastfeeding, if they choose to breastfeed. And the other one is about um collagen and uh connective tissue recovery and if you think that there's anything that you would recommend in a postnatal diet that could help sort of uh, support women as they recover that would be wonderful yeah. so a couple questions so it was about postpartum nutrition and breastfeeding nutrition so you hinted at something i like the way you framed the question because 
yes, there is actually pretty limited research on postpartum nutrition. So if we go back to the guidelines for a second, because I did, I did end up teaching a um, continuing education course for dietitians on postpartum nutrition and, and nutrient repletion and recovery. And then I also have a separate one on nutrition for breastfeeding and the variable nutrient levels in breast milk. And so I got like really into the research. Um, I thought I couldn't get more into the research than I did when I wrote Real Food for Pregnancy, but it happened. And what's frustrating is that the guidelines are specifically for postpartum are for breastfeeding women. Like the, the way that they estimated how much additional nutrition you need postpartum is the assumption that the woman is going to be breastfeeding and these are the additional nutrients required for breastfeeding. There isn't really a consideration for postpartum recovery. There isn't really a consideration for let's replete the nutrients that are lost in pregnancy or help you heal after your vaginal delivery with a tear or your C-section, like you've had major abdominal surgery. Like, no, the guidelines are really looking at breastfeeding. Um, and even then, they're probably not looking at it to the level that it needs to be looked at. And then just as a whole, the body of research, I think because most research is performed by men, there is not a lot of research on postpartum specifically, postpartum nutrition specifically. There's little subsets that you'll see pop up, but it's kind of a difficult group of people to study. And I don't think it's been super well-funded um, as a whole either. I mean, I, occasionally I'll do some calls with people who are planning a research study and they want my input on a particular population. So gestational diabetes, pregnancy, postpartum. And a lot of times the studies don't want to, the study authors are discouraged from doing a study at immediate, immediate postpartum because they're not going to get adequate follow-up. I mean, if you're going to do that, you really need to go to the person's home, <laughs> right? You can't expect a new mom with her two-week-old baby to be like packing up and going to your research facility. So that's just a, a challenge we have as a whole. Um, but if we just look at the guidelines at face value for what they are, the nutritional requirements postpartum are higher even than they are during pregnancy. They are the highest at any time of a woman's lifespan is during those first six months of breastfeeding. And I personally would argue that they're even higher in that first week or two weeks postpartum when you're in like the very acute recovery phase from childbirth. Because, I mean, birth can go many different directions. It's something that's not 100% within your control, unfortunately. Um, but it, it's usually some version of like a marathon or a surgery, or maybe like a marathon plus a surgery in the case of like an emergency C-section. There's a lot of energy and nutrients expended, and now there's wound healing that needs to happen. And even if you have like the most picture-perfect 
relatively fast, no tearing vaginal delivery, you still have a wound the size of a dinner plate on your uterus that needs to heal. And then your uterus needs to shrink down. All your abdominal organs need to find their new place. Your connective tissue needs to remodel considerably, not just the uterus, which has shrunk down from a watermelon to a pear, but all your connective tissue adapted to allow your body to stretch and expand and grow and birth a baby, right? So that also needs to happen. Now you have the crazy hormonal flux of breastfeeding, the hormones for breast breastfeeding. In addition, your thyroid undergoes significant changes and remodels. There's just so much going on, right? Um, so we do need to be talking about nutrition more for this population for this period of time. And you can, in fact, take in additional nutrients to help speed along wound healing. Like everything we know about wound care, which is like a whole, you know, separate area of nutrition can technically also be applied to early postpartum when you think about all of these, at least one, but maybe many different wounds um, that need healing. And when you think about recovery from like a marathon, for example, you can probably apply a lot of that same logic to recovering from birth um, as well. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big event. It's a big topic. Um, and it's such a shame that so little has been done on it. Um, you know, it would... Um, it would be lovely if, if actually that immediate postpartum period could be studied, like you said. But, um, you know, it sounds like the clinical reasoning, I, I really personally, I just love the way you think. I love that you challenge stuff, you know, this doesn't make sense. Um, I'm just confirming my biases, of course, because that's how, that's how I like to think as well. Um, <laughs> uh, with with the fact that that immediate postpartum period then really needs to have lots of micronutrient support and not just because the way that i heard you say the breastfeeding thing is oh postpartum women are breastfeeding machines like gotta feed the baby like you know women are more than that so not just f to support breastfeeding but to support uh wound healing to support recovery from such an energetic event, um, what are some of the tips, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do to just, you know, nip down to the shops and pick up a few groceries. Do, do you have uh, some tips on how women can, can prepare for that immediate postpartum period, um, particularly if they don't have the support, um, uh, you know, from from a partner because they have to work or just sending you know a partner to go get food um you know what what sort of tips do you have so that they get the uh the micronutrients that they really do need yes so i really like to encourage people to think ahead to postpartum and imagine how how are you going to rest recover and receive support. How, how are those three things gonna happen? Because I think most, most new moms leading up to, to birth 
are just thinking about the birth. And that's really, unfortunately, where it seems like all the education is like, oh, take your birth class. You know, everybody's so obsessed with this birth plan. And it's not to dis birth. I think it's very important to also plan for birth. Um, but in addition to planning for birth, you want to plan for your postpartum as well. And, you know, I think I failed to adequately plan for my first postpartum. And so my second time around, I was like, all of my energy for like pretty much the second half of my pregnancy was postpartum planning. Okay. Like who am I going to call in for help? Um, who's going to arrange a meal train for me so that there's people bringing me food what postpartum recovery meals am I going to make and have in my freezer or recipes that I can have aside so that my husband or my mom or somebody else can, can make this food easily. Like just pick one thing from the list, make that, you know, cause you don't want to be expending brain power on logistics, um, early postpartum. I mean, you will have to, but you want to minimize that. So there's a lot of different ways to make this work, but I really encourage people to expect that they're going to be asking for help on some level, because I think the underlying expectation in this world of, you know, really pushing for empowered independent women, which I love being an empowered independent woman, but for the immediate postpartum, you need support and built into virtually all cultures and we've now kind of been separated out of it in like western and colonial cultures in the past you know 100 plus years but built into many other cultures um who haven't been separated from their traditions there was significant support for new moms there was a period of mothering the mother and it wasn't on the moms to plan for their postpartum recovery probably <laughs> their family and village and community took care of it. So we kind of have to like fill in that gap here and educate our families and our spouses and our friends, um, or even potentially hire in support if that's a possibility, or if you don't have the family friend community aspect with like a postpartum doula or a meal delivery service or something, but that's what you need the help with. Um, there is a pretty lengthy, there's a whole chapter in Real Food for Pregnancy um, on the fourth trimester and postpartum. I started writing that book when my firstborn was 10 months old. So it was like top of mind. And I also have a really detailed blog post on it on my website um, called Real Food Postpartum Recovery Meals. It links out to 50 plus recipes. Most of them are freezer friendly kind of meals. So it's like just this huge free resource there for the taking because um, I really... I know firsthand how, how tough it can be, but I also know, you know, second time around having planned ahead, it was like, I went overboard with the freezer meals, like three, four months postpartum. I was like, Oh, I still have some freezer meals. Like, okay, cool. You know, <laughs> it's still helpful. Right. Cause babies are still, still a lot of work, even when they're older. Um, but it can be such a, a calmer, better experience when it, you at least have planned ahead that you're going to have help and planned ahead on how you're going to feed yourself for a while. You must have a huge freezer. 
We do. I mean, I've lived in Alaska before. And so when you live in Alaska, everybody has a deep freeze because of all the fish and hunting and whatever, like everybody has a deep freeze. So we have a deep freeze out in the garage. And uh, yeah, we had that thing packed with meals. Um, so it was great. Plus, I was I think it's I went overboard because I also had called my mom in to come up and stay with me for a couple weeks postpartum. And then we arranged for um, my in-laws to come up as well. And so I actually ended up having six weeks of family present. And like, I wasn't thinking that other people would be there to actually cook for me. I was like, just make all the food because maybe, (laughs) you know, I don't know, Armageddon. But I I ended up with probably an excessive amount of freezer meals. I'm not complaining. They still came in handy. Oh, that's awesome. I love how you talk about some of the cultural differences, um, Lily, as well, because I see that with quite a few of my clients who, you know, they might be, they might have um, come from a Chinese background and their mother will come over and help and will sit in with them for, you know, four to six weeks. I think it's usually, I think it's usually around a month for confinement and we'll literally yeah. just look after them and they don't have to do anything for that period of time. Um, and yeah, it's, it's incredibly helpful to have yeah. someone to give that level of support. Uh, I'm going to have two very quick questions. One is, um, what's, what would be your number one tip for, um, in terms of supporting collagen, like do you think bone broths uh, are useful? And the other one would be, um, what, what's your favourite snack for mums in a hurry that's easy? Mm, okay. So I am personally a big fan of collagen, collagen from food and also you know potentially collagen supplements for people who don't like to eat the collagen rich foods so collagen a like for pregnancy there's um collagen is the richest source of a specific amino acid that your body requires in higher amounts like you must get it from food to meet the body's demand for it it's called glycine and it's about about a third by weight of the amino acid profile of collagen protein itself. Um, Collagen is found in the bones, connective tissue and skin of animal foods. I think this is one of the, one of the undersung uh, nutritional heroes for pregnancy and postpartum. And it's just to add back to our previous conversation about vegetarian diets is one thing that's, um, it's pretty tricky to meet your glycine needs from, food alone when you're um, not consuming some form of bone skin or connective tissue of animal foods. So if you're doing something like bone broth, you're cooking all that stuff down, it's bones with usually some kind of connective tissue attached to it. Or if you're doing like a chicken stock or something, there's usually some extra skin or other parts in there, very rich in collagen. If you're doing um, meat on the bone, so a whole chicken or a whole beef roast or a pork shoulder that has the bone in, like all of that connective tissue that attaches the meat to the bone, that's giving you a lot of collagen. Any tough cuts of meat, and they're tough because there's connective tissue in there. Those things that require you to slow cook them for a long time or pop them in the pressure cooker, instant pot, whatever, also you're getting a ton of collagen from those. And interestingly, when you look at the traditional cultures and what foods they encouraged for postpartum recovery, you're seeing a lot of soups, stews, curries, and they're usually bone in or even like 
super high collagen things like the pig's trotter soup in China, or the um, there's a special seaweed soup in Korea that's made with a beef bone broth that usually uses like beef knuckle bones, which are very high in collagen. You see the in Mexico, there's a specific type of chicken soup. It's usually like whole chicken, including the feet. The feet are super high in collagen. Like all these cultures seem to somehow do almost the same thing postpartum. Like why, how, why did they know that this was, you know, the thing to do? Um, but we know there's a lot of collagen remodeling that's going on in postpartum. And those proteins are also really helpful for wound healing and for pretty much, you know, all your skin has been totally crazy stretched in pregnancy. And now your breasts are going to get super engorged as your milk comes in. Like there's a lot, your body still needs quite a bit of collagen for all of those things to happen. So it is an area where, no, I don't have a study I can point to that says like postpartum, you require X amount of collagen, but from a common sense standpoint and then pulling from what all these other cultures do, it just makes sense. So yes, big fan of collagen. Um, your second question was on quick snacks for moms. Um, and you're talking about like early postpartum or just any time? Yeah, let's, let's say in the first six weeks. So it's hard because I, I really encourage people to get like enough food at meals that you're not like starving for snacks. You're going to be starving for snacks anyways, especially if you're breastfeeding because you're just breastfeeding hunger is like a crazy untamable beast. But first of all, like make sure you're getting like full solid meals. You need a lot of food. Um, but snack wise, I mean, really anything that you can get your hands on because you'll be really hungry is totally fine. Um, but I do encourage people to try to get something that is a, a little bit more satiating. Um, so things that have fat and protein in them are going to fill you up longer. You don't have to eat those at the expense of not eating any carbohydrates, but say if you're eating an apple, an apple is not going to keep you full very long, especially if you're nursing, your, your blood sugar is going to go up and it's going to go right back down. Like you are, when you're a milk making machine, which you are for a while, um, your, your blood sugar goes down pretty quickly. So combining that with something like a handful of almonds would give you much more staying power than just eating the piece of fruit on its own. Um, any kind of like bars that have nuts mixed in, um, meat sticks, jerky, um, cheese, hard boiled eggs, like things that have sustenance. Even if you're eating like a portion of a meal as a snack <laughs> before it's time for your next meal, but just think sustenance um, versus just like the quick it's really easy when you don't have food prepped or people around to like deliver you food and snacks to just go for the cookies and the chips and the whatever because you need that quick pick-me-up when you're so tired but it, it comes back to bite you later on in the day so thank you there's some great suggestions and really simple and i think sometimes people think well you know, a dietitian who's into real food who might might just make everything really, really, really complicated and all these ingredients that I've never heard of that are, you know, have to be transported from the other side of the world. But no, you bring it back to, you know, really simple things and I, I appreciate that. 
Yeah, yeah, really, um, really love that. I I heard some cool things like you can eat brisket. That's cool, because um, you know tons of connective tissue in brisket and chuck steak for my curries. I'm just hearing all the things that I want to hear, right? Well, and uh, yeah, and jerky. <laughs> no, but that's that's actually absolutely right though, because that red meat. The one thing we didn't talk about with postpartum recovery. You have lost blood in birth. No matter what, you lose blood in birth. And then you continue bleeding after birth. And not many people are talking about anemia postpartum, but in the US, up to 30% of moms are wow. anemic postpartum. And if you have a C-section, you're almost guaranteed to lose more blood than a vaginal delivery, but you could have postpartum hemorrhage. I mean, we need to be thinking about replenishing that blood. And that is really, you're looking at really you're looking at meat. I mean, you're looking at iron rich, vitamin B12 rich, vitamin A rich foods to, to keep you from getting more anemic than you probably already are. So you heard right. Big fan (laughs) of of things like brisket. Cool. Uh, I love brisket. Um, The other thing is that I heard that the collagen intake, it's not that you eat collagen because it suddenly becomes collagen in your body. It's the glycine in collagen um, that comes from the animals. Um, That seems to be super important. Um, And then if you're going to snack, just, you know, don't choose just an apple, mix it up with something like a handful of almonds so that you get the, the long sustained instead of the spiked blood sugar. Um, that's awesome. Is there anything that you wanted to, any parting words, any, any final comments? We're going to make sure that the links to your resources, you know, your books, your website is going to be, uh, on the, on the website and in the show notes, but is, is there anything that you'd like to tell our listeners, be they the public or health and fitness professionals, um, uh, before you leave? Yeah, so I will, I will end with something that I find myself um, writing on social media quite a bit because, you know, I like to nerd out on the details. I think the details are fun, but people get very, very like, what, well, is this thing okay for pregnancy or is this thing okay for breastfeeding or is, are, what am I supposed to do different when I have the baby versus when I'm pregnant or when I'm preparing for pregnancy or what do I feed my kids? I'm like, real food is real food. Hashtag real food is real food. (laughs) Don't overcomplicate it. People get really bent out of shape about like thinking that they need, like Marika was kind of saying, like something exotic or something new and crazy or, you know, worried about the amount of something or the ratio or the macros. Like try not to get too don't overcomplicate it because a lot of this stuff, if you're just eating real food, a lot of these little details work themselves out and then throw in a mindful eating component and eat to satiety. You don't have to obsess over all the numbers and the grams and the just eat real food. And most, most of the details will be figured out. Thank you so much. I, I love keeping it simple. Um, I love thinking about thinking, I love thinking about the status quo, and I love hearing all of this stuff that I actually don't know very much about. Um, and I'm sure the listeners 
will love what you have to say. And if they don't, would love to hear from you. If you do have questions for Lily, please uh, let us know and we'll make sure that um, she gets those questions. Um, I'm sure Marika will agree. If you'd like to come back on, I'm sure there's tons more we can talk about. Um, so uh, thank you very much for your time, your generosity, your knowledge, the work that you've done, like 900 citations. When I heard that, it was just like, hmm, I got to pick my game up. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just no, simply she's not awesome. afraid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Always reading research studies. Yes, it's it's never ending. Happy place. Yeah, it's never, never ending. ending. No, that's well, awesome. Thank well, you. It was a lovely discussion. All the pregnant women around the world, with, with and without gestational diabetes, Lily, thank you so much for all your work. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, everybody, we're back just for a short question because my brain hurt a little bit. So I had to ask Lily a question, and that is in pelvic organ prolapse, um, you know, in the postpartum period, even in the, even through the delivery, What's your view on micronutrient deficiency, which may lead to, you know, structural support issues in, um, in pregnant and postpartum women? So I love this question because I have thought about this a lot and nobody has ever asked me this question on a podcast. So <laughs> you already win a prize. Um, Yes, I do believe that uh, nutrition could play a role potentially in pelvic floor recovery and, and potentially even prolapse as well. And we have to think about, you know, what, what has the body gone through over the course of the pregnancy and has the, has the body had the level of support, nutritional support? needed to adapt to all of these demands. And we talked a lot about collagen towards the end of the interview. And that that is an area of nutrition research that I believe is under-researched. All we know is that glycine specifically becomes conditionally essential in pregnancy, meaning outside of pregnancy, your body can get enough glycine from other amino acids and functions just fine during pregnancy you need extra and really the only way that you're going to get that extra is if you're regularly consuming foods that include the bone skin and connective tissue of animal foods so what if you go through the whole pregnancy and your body has kind of been like struggling to get by collagen wise i mean at term the uterus contains 800% more collagen than it did in the non-pregnant state. Okay. So, and then think about all of those little ligaments and things that are holding things in place and all the ligaments and connective tissue in the pelvis that adapts to prepare for and deal with birth. And then think about all the tissues of the pelvic floor, which are all very elastic collagenous sort of tissues. I mean, when you talk to midwives and things who work with women of various ages, we know that like younger women tend to recover better and faster and cope with birth than older ones. Their collagen turnover is much better than somebody who's having their first baby at like 42, right? So I, 
from just like a common sense perspective, theoretical perspective, I do believe that there's probably a role for collagen and all of the amino acids in collagen, your glycine and proline and hydroxyproline and whatnot, the things that keep your tissues strong and elastic. Um, I think there's probably a role for that in pelvic floor dysfunction and prolapse and, you know, non-healing perineal tears and all of those things. Um, but we also want to think about the other nutrients involved in tissue recovery, like your vitamin A, your zinc, um, a lot of your B vitamins. There's just a lot. <laughs> There's a lot nutritionally that we need to think about. And then like the final thing would be just protein as a whole. You know, I think I mentioned some areas where the guidelines are behind. And one of those for pregnancy specifically is protein. The first ever study that directly estimated protein requirements in pregnant women was performed in 2015. And they found that protein requirements, I know you should see Marika's face for anybody who's listening to the, um, to the podcast. <laughs> All of the previous recommendations were based on estimates from adult men. I mean, that's really how most of the guidelines are. This is why it's so frustrating for me. But this study found that protein requirements were underestimated at every stage of pregnancy, but especially in the last part of pregnancy, they were underestimated by 73%. So that's pregnancy. Now think about postpartum and what has not been studied, what we don't know, but what we can kind of glean from like wound healing, marathon recovery, and then like breastfeeding, their protein needs probably continue to remain pretty high. And in addition, your protein-rich foods would probably also provide you with lots of collagen, if they're collagen-rich protein foods, lots of vitamin A. If you look at traditional cultures, a lot of the foods recommended were really high vitamin A animal foods, like especially liver. Um, high in zinc, you know, a lot of these nutrients are required for these tissues to recover. So do I think it's causative? Probably not. Do I think it's a factor in, in potential difficulties in, in healing from pregnancy and birth trauma and, you know, prolapse and any of those things that can occur? Probably. I do think it's a factor. Is it, is that, you see, cause I don't, I haven't really heard much about that. Is it a popular view, the view that you have? What's the, what's the consensus? I don't know if there is a consensus because I personally haven't heard people talking about this. So I'm not sure. I've heard a lot of things that, a lot of this stuff I end up hearing sort of down the line from like observations of midwives, you know, I observed that, or people who have been through multiple pregnancies in eight different ways. And so sometimes it's like a midwife who observes like, oh, my older clientele don't heal as well from birth, or my vegetarian clients tend to have uh, perineal tears that take longer to heal and recover, or people who have experienced different ways of eating. Like I, I 
like a standard American diet for my first pregnancy and birth recovery was really rough. And in my second pregnancy, I ate more real food and more nutrient dense foods and my recovery was really pretty easy. Um, so a lot of it really is kind of anecdotal and it's sort of thinking about it sort of from a theoretical perspective. I really hope that we have more research on it someday, but I'm not holding my breath for it to happen in the next like five years. Well, clinical observation is a great place to start for prompting researchers to look into things. So I really hope somebody picks that up and, um, and looks into it. Look, there's so many more questions that I have for you, but um, I really appreciate your time and thank you for answering that one. Um, I look forward to chatting to you next time. Well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to hit like if you enjoyed the episode and leave any comments or questions below. We'd really like to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified when we release our next episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.